From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here this week in Charlotte, North Carolina. On this week's edition, the human value of green buildings, a Republican takes on climate change, why we need to rethink flying, and a packaging tour of Walmart. It's a wrap this week on 350. It's May 17th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from approximately 641 miles up Interstate 95 in Midland, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. You keep forgetting the park. I do live in a kind of a park, ah, Midland Park, New Midland. Jersey, but okay. I'll, I'll forgive you. Everyone, uh, when you when you come visit me here, you will get the name straight. That's exactly right. But, I've uh, never been, so I, that will <laughs> no. figure that out. <laughs> so exactly. Well, welcome to the East Coast again. I'm glad to have you in the same time zone. I'm I hope it's a little warmer down there than it has been here. It's been actually in the 40s this week, which is, quite frankly, I love it. Everyone, all of my friends complain, but I love it because it's really spring. Well, spring here. that 641 miles uh, south is it makes a big difference. It's in the mid-high 70s here this week, a little bit humid, nice and sunny, uh, kind of toasty, actually, so not uh, not chilly at all. It's It's summer. And you are there, I think, for the second of our two Green Biz Executive Network meetings this month. Am I correct? You, of course, are. You knew that. Uh, Last week, you and I were at Steelcase New York showroom and in Columbus Circle, where we hosted the first of our three May editions of the Green Biz Executive Network meetings. This week, we're in Charlotte at a company called Sealed Air Corporation. Now, what on earth could sealed air be known for? Ooh, ooh, ooh. You got this one, I bet. It's kind of bubble a setup. Wrap? Go ahead. Bubble wrap? Yes. Could it be bubble? Oh. That great therapeutic material that we all like, I love. Uh, sealed air was founded in 1960 to commercialize bubble wrap, which is, yeah. of course, sealed air. And that's not all they make anymore. They're in the, a bunch of things in food care and product care. Um, their other big product is called Cryovac, which is a thin plastic used uh, shrink or wrap objects. Um, and it's primarily on food. And um, it, it, it both keeps in and lets out, or it keeps out and lets in a little bit of air that both prevents oxidation and, hip, and inhibits the growth of pathogens, leading to longer shelf life mm-hmm. at, the, at the market and at home. And if you talk sustainability at, at, at sealed air, it's all about preventing food waste. So a little bit later in the program, we're going to do a tour of a Walmart Supercenter uh, in uh, Whitehall Commons, just southwest of downtown Charlotte, with Ron Cotterman, the Vice President of Corporate Innovation and Sustainability. Fascinating. We walked around the perimeter of the store, which is where all the refrigerated and and frozen uh, foods are, from deli counters to meats and fish and a bunch of things. And he each stop, he, he took us through uh, what's going on and why the packaging is the way it is and what it does. And uh, and, and also some of the challenges with it from a recycling and, and waste reduction point of view. Food waste, not so much, but plastics, well, we're still still working on that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's ironic. You know, I, I when I think about that whole area of technology, I am reminded of the fact that my father, believe it or not, has owned one of those vacuum sealers for, for 
ah, at least a dozen years, I'm thinking, every time he um, freezes leftovers, he does exactly what you're talking about. He vacuum packs it um, and, and puts it in the freezer, and it really helps the freezer burn. So that technology is super important for preventing that waste you're talking about. So yeah, and, cool, and, very cool. Yeah, and what you're finding is that a lot of the things in stores that used to last a few days now actually last a few weeks, and it's not mm-hmm. because there's there's uh, preservatives or other things. It's just it's all about the packaging. So mm-hmm. well, we'll get into that a little bit later. But uh, right now, let's step back and look at the week in review. Let's start with the piece this week by our contributor, R.P. Siegel, who interviewed uh, Bob Inglis, a former congressman from just south of where I am in South Carolina, uh, who has uh, left office. He was voted out, actually, in 2010 for not being conservative enough on climate change. And since then, he started an organization called Republic N. That's Republic with E-N at the end. The E-N stands for Energy and Enterprise and Environment bright red logo to make sure we know that uh, sort of which side of the aisle this originated. And the whole purpose is to build a climate change platform that his fellow conservatives and Republicans can support. I've uh, I've met him and talked to him a few times, and he's really interesting and, and uh, probably out of step, well, definitely out of step with, with his party these days. But um, he understands that uh, climate is uh, something that is not only real, but really important. And he's been presenting around the country this presentation on the free enterprise solution to climate change. R.P. Siegel, who's based upstate New York, uh, attended one of those and and got a chance to interview uh, former Congressman Ingalls. And uh, an interesting story just to hear how he's talking about this stuff. Yeah, and I think um, what... What struck me with this story is number one, the motivation, right? So, and as as is the case with so many um, converts, if you will, his son was the one that got him to uh, quote clean up his act <laughs> on the environment. So, I first first of all, I just want to mention that because I feel like that is one of the best ways to to get converts is to have the next generation speak in a thoughtful way to their parents and to their aunts and uncles at that Thanksgiving table that we, we always bring up as an example, you know, the arguments over Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> that you have about different issues. But the, um, the mission of this organization is to, to really reach two sides. Number one is obviously to get um, conservatives to understand that there is a crisis um, and that um, the economics of dealing with this actually are, are, uh, are good, right? So, and I love this quote here in in the article. Um, English talked to when he was talking to RP. He mentioned what you need to explain to Uncle Charlie is that we have a problem with economics that has an environmental con- consequence. If you fix the economics, the environment will take care of itself on this. So, I don't know if I entirely agree with that sentiment, but it is a way of of triggering the, uh, if you will, the. The, the, the skeptics and, and, and having them really sort of understand how this is, a, is not just a, uh, that, that the, fixing the environment isn't necessarily a cost, it's, it's a, an opportunity. So I think that was important. But also, when you, I think, and, and this I'll just, you know, I'll use myself as an example. I know I have um, erred on the side of being too passionate about why I feel um, action needs to be taken and 
and it, and his one of his goals is to help arm if liberals, if you will, with better economic information. How to talk about this in business terms, in free enterprise terms, to to really win that um, that argument, if you will, and, and to get people thinking differently on the other side of the aisle. Yeah, and I admit to being a little skeptical on that because we've been doing that for a long time, uh, some mm-hmm. of us at least, not necessarily making this about polar bears, but making this about economics and 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 yeah. the economic opportunity. And, and that Uncle Charlie argument, uh, and I like Bob, and I think he's doing God's work out there, is, is, is that, you know, for a long time, the implicit orthodoxy, I'm not sure if that's a term I can really use, but has been that free market fixes every problem. Free market isn't fixing climate change, so climate change isn't really a problem. <laughs> you know, when it's sort of been a, a way of people just said, saying, well, there's nothing we can do. This is God's will, or this is just our fate, or it's not really an issue we need to worry about, or it's going to fix itself somehow. So I think that relying entirely on the free enterprise is a great ideal, but it doesn't always work. And And it reminds me of something that really momentous that happened this week, Heather. Uh, as you probably know, this week we passed an ominous milestone of 415 parts per million of, of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the most ever in human history. And something interesting came out, too, was that there were some internal memos unearthed by uh, our, our friends at Inside Climate, which did this Pulitzer-winning 2015 investigation into ExxonMobil that ExxonMobil documents nailed it. They said that in 2019, we were going to hit 415 parts per million. Isn't that astonishing? The, the reason I'm bringing that up now is that this is, you know, the free market knew about this. The free market didn't address it. The free market was more incented to, you know, sweep it under the rug, if, if you will, and 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 just keep making money selling what they were selling. And so, you know, leaving this to free market isn't really the the sole solution. Engaging the free market is absolutely something we need to do. But I, I love the conversation that uh, Congressman Inglis is having and and causing to to have in in audiences that wouldn't normally be having any conversation of this. That wasn't just sort of typical knee jerk red meat, you know, uh, de- denial or you know, kind mm-hmm. of things. So, but I'm still kind of skeptical. Yeah, yeah, I am too. I think also just sort of in the same context, and I'll just mention it briefly, um, because I haven't really had a chance to analyze it. But this week also brought the uh, another new coalition. Um, it's called the CEO Climate Dialogue. Um, and it features, I think, about a dozen CEOs um, that have come out and sort of they're trying to state their case. And it's interesting, you, you brought up ExxonMobil a moment ago. This is um, this has got uh, BP uh, involved, the CEO of BP, uh, Dominion Energy, Shell. PG&E. Um, yeah, PG&E, um, BASF, you know, also some of the usual suspects, suspects, if you will, like Unilever, which have always been very good about talking about um, the, at the CEO level about the, uh, the need to take action. But, but this, this particular um, coalition is coming out um, to sort of, lend their, their, their vocal support for a price on carbon dioxide emissions. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention that as a, um, that's the sort of thing we need also, you know, um, CEOs to start speaking up. Yeah. Well, that leads us to our second story we want to talk about, uh, which is 
a sto uh, story about Virgin Airlines CEO Josh Bayless. And, and again, I'm, I'm going to sound like uh, Debbie Downer, Mr. Skeptic today, but uh, the headline <laughs> is, every one of us should think hard about whether we need to take a flight. And again, did I mention that this is the CEO of an airline? Uh, I think it's interesting that he's looking at this. And of course, you know, the air, air emissions is airline emissions, air travel emissions is really something we need to be looking at because um, they are rising, taking off, uh, as it were, in some very big ways. Uh, if you look at some of the, the, the data on the, on the growth of air travel, that um, uh, between 2009 and 2014, that five-year period, the total number of passenger flights in just five years' time increased by one billion Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. that's just that. And and then you look at, at going forward is that uh, air travel is projected to double uh, over the next uh, 20 or 30 years. Um, we need to do some serious rethink on this. And I, I guess that's what mm -hmm. uh, CEO Bayless is getting to here. Uh, what was your take? So my take, I mean, so first of all, I totally I agree. This, the, you know, yeah, an airline talking about flying less. Um, you know, they should, they, they need to, they need to admit that they, they are not moving very quickly on addressing their footprint. Um, and there's some very, um, specific technical reasons that that's the case. They're, the, the sort of, um, challenge of putting an, an all electric, uh, you know, passenger airliner up in the air is pretty, they're pretty formidable and it's going to take a long time before we get to that. Um, Virgin is, I will say Virgin Atlantic is one of the, um, more progressive airlines uh, on testing and using portions of biofuel and sort of mixing in these less, you know, these these less intensive um, fuels into their mix. Um, they are definitely doing a lot of work on that front. They've got at least two major partnerships, um, Agilix and Lanzatech. They're they're behind. Um, they're working with both of those companies to to experiment. So you know, I I, I do have to give them props for that. And I do actually, you know, I like when CEOs are transparent to say, yeah, I, we know we're bad. We're trying to figure out how to get less bad. Um, and, you know, the, the fact that they're, they're talking about it, I, I, I give them credit for that. Um, it, it, it's, I have to say, I have to admit, and, and I'm, I, you may poke at me for saying this, but I think the business sector also needs to think about, you know, it, there's two kinds of travel, right? There's people getting on planes to take vacations. And then there's, all of the business travel that goes on and and we are uh i don't know if guilty is the right word but we we are are we have major events that we run every year and we we love it when people come because there's definitely a need for people to be interfacing in in person and 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 nothing can beat that face-to-face -face connection um it's so valuable for for organizations that are helping to, to forge partnerships and to talk about things. And we know the importance of face-to-face. -face. We also know, though, that you can extend that dialogue in other ways after a meeting, after a great event, after an event like you're having, you know, that we had this week, um, that face-to-face that -face does need to happen. I think thinking about from the business world's perspective, how to better blend, you know, in-person events and and then all of the great things you can do afterwards or, you know, in, during the interim um, with, with online, I think is, is something that we don't 
think about enough strategically. Um, you know, we know that the technology is coming into place, but so, you know, the business sector also needs to kind of get their act together and think about which sort of um, things that they should be supporting. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I'm certainly not one to talk, having flown last week from San Francisco to New York, <laughs> exactly. this week from San Francisco to Charlotte, <laughs> next week from San Francisco to Chicago. Right. And then it keeps going after that. So it's really hard to do, easy to say, and definitely desirable. But there's a, you know, and, and I, I agree. It's great that, yeah. that Virgin CEO Josh Bayless is talking about this and and um, we'll see how much of it's talk and, and where they actually go. But let's move on to the last story that you did, mm-hmm. Heather, uh, called What Intel and VMware Know About Your Data Center. Yep. What do they know? Yep. <laughs> so they know how much energy you're using. And, I, and what I wanted to point out, first of all, there's data centers, right? So our, your Many of the big banks have their own data centers. They run them either on site or maybe, you know, in a different building. Um, And then there's the data center industry. So we write a lot about the big cloud companies like Google and Microsoft and IBM and Amazon and and also about the huge co-location providers, Equinix and Digital Realty. And they're all, um, of course, doing a lot when it comes to energy efficiency and um, renewables, right? So many of the big power purchase agreements we've seen have come out of that sector. But it's good to remember that, hey, most companies have some kind of data center operation and how are they managing? How, what tools are, 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 are available to them? And so I, what this particular piece about is sort of driven by um, the fact that VMware, which is the big, um, the company that is the big virtualization software company. So basically what they do is allow you to run you know, more than one major application on this on a single server, right? So the 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 whole play for them when they they came out was, hey, let's let's use less computer hardware and let's put more of these quote virtual machines onto one piece of hardware. So that's they've always been an efficiency play. And now what they're doing is um, they've con- they've just introduced a service called the carbon avoidance meter, and the idea is that they can now look. Um, using various uh, tele- telemetry technologies as well as some information from um, an organization called Wattime, they can tell a company where their um, data center is using power. So um, this particular, let's take a customer service application, your customer service desk, um, maybe they're running off of wind energy, but maybe they're running off of uh, coal. And as a um, company, do you want to switch that load, if you will, to a different place? Can you switch that load to a different server um, in a different location that's maybe using cleaner energy? And so uh, that is a really cool product. Intel has something that's very similar, and it comes out of their their um, efforts to create uh, data center management tools. And it, you know, these these started as basically things for the IT department to use to to say to to look at things like is this piece of hardware being used to its fullest potential and when you know is this load going to break my computer you know because you know and and do I need to upgrade something so that's where this stuff started but what VMware has done is create an adjunct to that to now look at the power consumption and that's that's cool in in of itself but what's really cool in my mind is that this idea came from lo and behold the sustainability team 
Yay, sustainability <laughs> team. That's great. Well, no, I mean, here's the deal, right? So most, many companies still think about these efforts as a, as a cost, you know, as a cost implication. So if I do this thing, it's going to cost me money or maybe save me money, hopefully. Um, you know, if I, if I think about this particular function in a different way, but what this, um, this is a business opportunity. This is a service. It won't be out officially until later this year, but this is a revenue driving service that was dreamed up by the sustainability team. And so that to me was like hugely compelling. Um, you know, it, it just, it signals that there's, there's companies out there starting to look at this in a different way. And, um, but, but to the, to the original point of this article, that this is just a way of helping companies really understand their energy consumption patterns and, um, get a better grip, um, in the future, hopefully with, with maybe automating ways of changing this. So if you know that this load is, 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 um, not running, um, to its fullest potential, then maybe you, you want to change it to a different power source. If, if, if you, um, need to take something off a fossil fuel grid, then you can move it. So I, I just, I just was really compelled by the, this particular announcement. And then um, have, I've also, as I mentioned, I've spoken to Intel about this, and they're spending a lot of time trying to help um, organizations better understand their environments. They're using sensors and, and so forth. But also, like, I, I believe it's not there yet, but I believe artificial intelligence will be huge here um, because you'll be able to really define the parameters that you want to, to work against. And and, and let the machines take over and, 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 and automate when a load gets switched or maybe when a server gets powered down so that it's not using that power. So pretty compelling. Green Building Council, the organization behind the widely used LEED certification program, recently celebrated its 25th anniversary. And as it looks ahead, the group is embarking on an ambitious new messaging and outreach campaign dubbed the Living Standard Initiative. In early April, USGBC released the first report as part of that initiative. Its research, commissioned by ClearPath Strategies, broadly looks at American views on environmental issues as well as how they view the concept of green buildings. I spoke with Mahesh Ramanujam, president and CEO of USGBC, about the research. Following is an edited version of our interview, starting with his thoughts on why it's important for the green building sector to think more about the people who will occupy the spaces they are creating. One thing is very, very clear. We need to move faster. Because despite the progress we have made, green building is still not considered a mainstream concept. And also, in order to move faster and achieve a sustainable future for all, we should not only move the entire industry, we should not only involve the industry, but we should also go beyond to involve the general public. Because we know that demand changes everything. So, from our point of view, this means motivating building and construction professionals to prioritize green buildings. But at the same time, also have them prioritize the people within the places and the spaces we certify, the offices, the apartments, the schools, the hospitals, the other building types, also communities and cities too. So clearly to do this, you know, for us, it's very simple. We have a messaging mountain we need to climb. We need to meet people where they are. 
we need to understand the americans current perceptions and beliefs about the environment sustainability green buildings so that we know how best we can communicate how green building actually impacts their lives so as someone who follows this the general findings of your first survey weren't all that surprising to me um i'll just cite one of the the high level of take back takeaways which is that almost 3 quarters of the 1600 respondents said that environmental problems are very or somewhat important and a majority were worried about the impact on human health but very few are actually doing something about addressing their own carbon footprint on an individual level so we know that people care about this but many of them struggle or are not doing specific things yet well, for me one of the biggest good news items was the finding that two thirds of the respondents saw the link between green buildings and cleaner air, reduced toxin exposure, and clean water within their communities. So I wanted to ask about uh, you what you make of that data, and what should it tell the business community, the business world at large, that should be thinking about green building. So, knowing that the environment is a concern for people, we know that. based on our mission that we need to better understand what day to day actions people were taking the top four we saw was recycling 60% reducing waste 48% conserving water was 44% and reducing energy use was 32% what was striking for me for us was to see that only 7% said living in a green building so we have a language problem we have a message problem right and the research also shows that what people want most are ways of having a better day to day experience in life as i noted earlier which means cleaner air cleaner water water quality happiness productivity having a comfort living in their house all this attributes to health both emotional and physical health and they also told us that they don't just want these things but they quite frankly they expect them that's interesting because we know that most popular actions recycling reducing waste water and energy are a part of what green buildings offer the industry knows this but americans are not recognizing green buildings as a solution which means that we have a lot of work to do to make people understand that buildings in fact green buildings are actually behind these benefits so when we look at it from a business lens point of view what we look at that is our messaging first we cannot just intimidate people with as with a series and streams of data that's mostly speaking inwards right i mean data doesn't move action we all know that that is why we started living standard as a storytelling campaign with a very clear objective that we need to really help people tell a better story about sustainability and at a broad level the business community has to focus on three things the healthy outcomes the impact on future generations and the planetary stakes and this is why first healthy outcomes is that sustainable cities improve people's lives and better designed spaces help people live longer healthier and happier lives toxin free materials good air ventilation and air purifying plants all together in a home or a workspace can improve physical health and comfort by reducing symptoms of allergies and respiratory related illnesses like asthma and with this message 51% of respondents in our survey were extremely or very likely to take action now what does it mean to the business community here is that that means you are focusing on employee productivity you are focusing on employee retention you are trying to prioritize your employees as the number one that's a very clear important requirement because the biggest cost any business has today is their people the second is impact on future generations at the rate the planet is warming catastrophe is almost certain i don't want to paint a bleak picture of the world 
but but this is what the data says if we continue to do nothing our children will ask how could you do this to us and they will be right then the last but not the least the planetary stakes with more natural disasters in 2017 the united states faced 16 natural disasters costing 306 billion dollars in taxpayer money to actually address those challenges in a reactive manner now when you put that in context the the endless disasters the drought the fires the hunger clearly our global environment is getting worse every day at least within united states there is a clear data that showed that we have gone through that stress now united states climate scientist report says that if we do not make dramatic changes in how we live and the fuel we consume we will have environmental catastrophe by 2030 that is exactly 11 years from now and i plan to be around and all of us are going to be around by that time so when you look at from that perspective how do you quantify a risk to the business what does it mean to your asset what does it mean to your employees what does it mean to your your environment what kind of long term impact that you are going to carry on your balance sheet which you are not still recorded on the contrary when you really look at it you have to look at this through a very different lens this is all about income equal in income inequality as well when you look from the big picture people who can afford can come to the work during a disaster but if people were living in a place of disaster or people are coming to a work to a place where there is a disaster what ends up happening is that people who are making those daily wages cannot show up to work which means it's a quality of life conversation that is going to directly impact their breadwinning strategy for that day so climate change is clearly going to affect the poor and businesses have responsibility to not leave their communities behind not leave their active workers behind so when you really look at through this lens it is to me climate change is directly proportional to climate risk and the business community needs to wake up see the data and like everything else they are adapting to like innovation technology strategy financial responsibility now climate change has become one of their components that they have to actively actively focus on to really respond and 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 really show that they are committed to uh, delivering a better solution so one final question the you uh-huh. know people know you for the lead program um so how is the lead program flexing evolving uh to 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 account for this and sort of account for this this deeper concern for human health or does it need to involve uh, evolve is is it already doing these things but it's just about a matter of messaging uh, clearly you know for like everything else in the world uh lead itself has to evolve that's why you know when we started in 1998 we were in version 1 we are in version 4.1 it's almost the fifth version of lead the reason is lead continues to evolve because it understands that the market evolves and it is trying to respond to the market needs but one of the reasons lead is so successful is because it's a leadership standard we always say what gets measured what gets done what gets done gets improved what gets improved gets replicated here it's aptly applicable to lead that lead is continuously always trying to improve which means you are able to replicate what happens when you replicate you are able to drive global market transformation which is exactly what we need now you are absolutely right lead is already responding to help the indoor environmental quality the indoor air quality the comfort how you focus on energy how you focus on decarbonization how you focus on greener communities how you actually deploy a responsible site selection strategy how you select your materials all these are connected back to people because it affects one way or the other to the people but however we are also acknowledge and we also recognize that we have more work to do think about how you interact with the building space breathe see hear 
sit, work, learn, play, touch, smell, think, move, eat, drink, etc., etc., etc. Each of these is affected in some way by the quality of our buildings. And these define the gamut of our health-related credits in LEED. But how are they being messaged? Back to, again, the Living Standard Campaign. How are these being communicated? How is the common people actually internalize it? So that they don't need to understand all the, the strategies behind LEED, but they need to learn how to demand LEED when they actually buy their next home or their next house so that they know that the LEED standard itself will give them a certain level of guarantee or an assurance that their wellness is taken care of. I think clearly we have some work to do. So our latest version of LEED clearly emphasizes that LEED rating system is focused on performance, quantifying performance, but clearly from an existing building point of view, we have to spend a lot of time educating the public that whenever you touch a building for retrofitting or rebuilding, you have an opportunity to improve the quality of life and the health and wellness of the people who are going to occupy in those buildings. So we have made some clear steps in that direction, but what we see is that is what's next is that really focusing leads value proposition around the health and wellness of people inside those buildings is a one clear step we need to make, which involves putting better credits, better strategies, better quantification criteria, and last but not the least, helping tell the entire industry, tell a story so that the common people will be able to simply understand that the benefits that they are seeking are given by their buildings that they thrive in. And an extension to that is that I have to talk about our partners. Partnership is a new leadership. So our close partnership with Well, is a, this is why exactly we took this step a few years ago in the direction that integration with Well from GBCI's point of view to certify both lead and well projects was the first step in the direction because our goal is to continue to provide that integrated solution to the market. Now we are working even more aggressively to see how we can deepen our engagement with well so that the health and wellness aspect in lead is not just a one-time leadership moment at the time of just building design and construction, but it is a perpetual engagement process so that we continue to monitor and improve the quality of people, uh, quality of life of the people who are living and occupying these buildings. So as I mentioned earlier, two of my colleagues and I, John Davies and Shauna Rappaport, and I went through the Walmart Supercenter just outside of downtown Charlotte with Ron Cotterman, the Vice President of Corporate Innovation and Sustainability. He took us around the outside of the store where the refrigerated and frozen foods were and looked at packaging and the role of packaging uh, in keeping foods safer and more shelf-friendly uh, uh, and basically eliminating or substantially reducing food waste. Here are some excerpts from that tour. So is the packaging we're going to see come from Sealed Air? I'm going to show you a variety of packaging formats. Some of those are from Sealed Air, but some are from other companies as well. But what's really important is to understand why products are packaged the way they are. So here we are looking at pizza. Yeah, so a, a typical pizza package for fresh pizza is a pizza in a corrugated box with a cutout window so that you can see the pizza. The pizza is then wrapped in a plastic film, and the purpose of the film is twofold. Number one, it's, it's so that you can see the pizza, but secondly, it keeps the toppings in place so that uh, when the consumer takes it home during that process of moving it through their car or into their kitchen, that all the toppings are in place before they put it in the oven. So this plastic that we're seeing here, the shrink-wrapped uh, pizza, is that something that the consumer could recycle? Absolutely. The, the plastic that's used on a pizza is something typically called polyethylene shrink film. 
and it's, it, it recycles quite easily. The, the challenge is the collection of it. So many stores have put uh, collection bins out in front and, and things like the, the, the pizza film could be cleaned and put into those collection bins for, uh, for recycling them. But a consumer doesn't know that. Well, the challenge, of course, is the films are not printed. And without the printing, uh, the consumer may not always know how to dispose of that, uh, that particular packaging. Here's another example of a shrink film. And this one is a shrink film that's wrapped around a sweet potato. So you've got potato, a box of potatoes, sweet potatoes, and each potato has its own shrink wrapping, and each shrink wrapped potato has its own paper label on it. What's going on? Well, the reason that you have this packaging is convenience for the consumer. This potato has already been cleaned and wrapped in the packaging, and it's ready to put directly into the microwave oven. It actually you know, microwaves more quickly and retains a lot of the the moisture in that potato when it's microwaved. So you're microwaving it in the plastic? Absolutely. In fact, if you read the label, it says ready for the microwave. There are a lot of consumers that uh, will use a microwave to cook a potato, and this is a way to do it much more quickly and safely and retain a lot of the flavor and moisture in the, in the final product. So if, it's, if I'm entertaining the family for Thanksgiving and I need 10 of these, I just have to unwrap each of these things or can I there's some places here in the store I can still buy bulk I guess maybe down there yeah you absolutely don't want to unwrap these things um, because that's the that's the the key to the success is that you can pop them in the microwave cook them more quickly and then remove the packaging after after they're cooked there, there are a lot of examples of packaging that can be used in in a cooking environment either microwave or even in a conventional oven not all plastics can do that but if a plastic is used for that application, the FDA has very strict requirements of what uh, the testing that needs to be done to verify that plastic is safe for that application. So when you see a, a microwave uh, product like that, that packaging has been tested to verify that nothing uh, comes out of the plastic during that cooking process. When you're, when you're looking across the produce, you see a lot of... So, 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 we're, so we're in the salad section here looking at Pre-made salads, bags of lettuce, boxes of lettuce. So what's going on here? Well, one of the key uh, innovations that's occurred in the produce area is the ability to, to basically buy produce ready to eat, even in the form of salads. So if you look at what we're looking, if you look at the lettuce and the products that we're looking at here, and you look at the shelf life of some of these products, you'll see dates well out in advance, up to two weeks. Now, typically, uh, when you'll, you'll cut up uh, vegetables such as lettuce, it doesn't, it doesn't last for a long time. So the question is, how can this happen? And uh, basically what you're doing here is you're mimicking nature. You're, you're packing the, the, the lettuce in an environment so the lettuce thinks it's still growing. It's called a modified atmosphere package. And so that the, the, the gas that's inside that package is either carbon dioxide or nitrogen or in, in some cases a, a, a small amount of water so that you mimic the environment, the growing environment of, of the package. So that, that innovation allows perishable goods like produce to be shipped across the country, as well as have uh, one or even two weeks of shelf life in the consumer's refrigerator after they purchase them. It's a huge innovation uh, around fresh foods. Is there any data on the, how much food waste around leafy greens has decreased over time as a result of this? Well, what we do know is that this category of within the grocery store is one of the highest shrink categories there is. In other words, the, you get the highest percentage of food waste. 
Um, and the, the very fact that they're using these packaging innovations is, is an example to try and reduce that or contain that as low as possible. We're going to go see dairy and we're going to see meat because those have the highest value to prevent the, uh, the wastage in. And you rarely see those products in an unpackaged form. So we're at the uh, deli counter here. At the deli counter, when you look at the products that you see here, you see that they're all packaged. They're packaged in plastic bags, different brands here. So we're talking about roast beef and chicken breast and ham and bologna and, and things like that. And many of these products are actually cooked in that packaging. So uh, as you look at the turkey and the hams and such, uh, that product has been... Um, pumped into a packaging, cooked, and then it, it is, is uh, distributed and sold to the stores in that same packaging. The packaging is removed, sliced, and that's how you get your sliced deli meat. So um, that's an amazing plastic that can both withstand that cooking and then be refrigerated and still, I guess, retain its, its uh, integrity. Absolutely. So it not only gives you the, the, the functionality that you need, but you'll notice in all these packages, they all have very attractive labels as well. So it's there for merchandising as well and branding for the various uh, uh, you know, deli meat providers. And are these plastics that the, the store is recycling or are they what's happening to them? Yeah, probably today a lot of the plastics are not recycled uh, as part of the stores. So that's a future opportunity that, w that we really need to you know, help help individual stores figure out how to get those products to a place where they can be recycled and recovered. You need you know, new ways of, of recycling that. So the industry right now is rallying around something called chemical recycling, which allows you to take a wide variety of plastic types that might be collected in a post-consumer way and bring those back to the building blocks to make new plastics out of. So the industry is, 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 has a lot of interest in that type of technology because it makes it simpler for the consumer and the recycling industry to actually recover the, the plastics after use. Now we're gonna go over to the poultry section. I'm gonna show you an example of a turkey package for ground, ground uh, turkey. So this is a plastic... Uh, what? It's, it's a plastic tray. Is that a, a, a mixed a plastic or is it a typical... Is this it a... particular plastic, if, if you turn it over, um, you'll see that it's got a number five in a triangle. It's polystyrene. Number five is polypropylene. polypropylene. Right. And, and this particular one is one of Sealed Air's products, our, our Cryovac brand. But this film is sealed around the perimeter, and you'll notice that the package almost has a pillow in it. The, the reason for that is there's a, like the produce example, there's a gas in here that retains the color and the freshness of the product to give it the, the ability to be distributed and, and have shelf life as a result of it. So uh, the, the, the quality of this product, the appearance of it, uh, the flavor, are, are retained by virtue of that modified atmosphere. And so that's what these packages do, is they, um, they give you the ability to uh, extend the, the shelf life. Again, this, this particular product is, has got over, over a weeks of shelf life on it, but this product will look the same two days after it's packaged or 10 days after it's packaged because of the use of the modified atmosphere. And it's an inert gas of some sort? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's typically nitrogen or carbon dioxide. So Ron, now that we've seen everything that we've seen here, talk a little bit about how you're rethinking some of this in a world of circularity, a circular economy. Does that change the nature of packaging or the idea of packaging itself? Well, absolutely. I mean, some of the things that we've already seen here, like starting with the pizza film, there are a number of films and, and, and flexible plastics that can be put into curbside recycling bins. So we're trying to figure out which of those could actually be printed 
and, and what kind of information could be on those films that the consumer could interact with to know how to dispose of them. So even things such as uh, printable codes that you could use a smart device that would tell you not only you know, some information of the packaging type, but actually how to dispose of it. So we're integrating the digital component uh, instead of just immediately going to, you know, thinking printing for branding alone. So we're using, you know, printing as a, as a means. But the second big thing is around design, is that we, we, we acknowledge that there are certain packaging types that are collected today, uh, some of the rigid uh, trays that we saw. So we're looking at how to design packaging so it's not two separate components of a film and a tray, but one single component that could go in that curbside bin. So that's a, a second huge area of innovation. But the third one that I think actually is probably going to be the most impactful is really working on the recycling infrastructure itself. Because of the, the, the limitations we have today of, of our recycling facilities, they can only accept a pretty narrow range of packaging formats and packaging types. So being able to expand that via new technology and investments in technology is, is really where all the focus is right now. So we don't want to move backwards in terms of, of underpackaging products that might lead to you know, unintended consequences like greater food waste or, or lack of consumer acceptance. But we also want to you know, build on those successes around convenience and appearance and, and food safety and now give the recyclability um, uh, a, a key focus on that. So we think hitting both the, the materials, the design, and the recycling infrastructure are going to be three main ways that the industry is going to move forward. And of course, a lot of consumer education. Absolutely. And we have in almost everyone's hands the ability to do that through the via of a smart device. And so how do you integrate that smart device with the, the product that you consume? So you not only want the details of the product, everything from the nutrition information to cooking instructions, but also the packaging that came with it. What is that? Is that safe for my family? And how can I re you know, recycle it after use? Exciting time to be in packaging. Ron Cotterman, thanks so much for the tour. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. So, Joel, I it sounds like you know more about plastic than anyone I know now. <laughs> well, it sounds like that, but actually, Heather, we just skimmed the surface. I mean, we looked at maybe 10 or maybe a dozen different kinds of packaging, but there are hundreds, actually thousands of different kinds of plastics out there uh, in a grocery store, in, in that Walmart supercenter or any supermarket. And that's sort of the challenge is how do you look at that through the lens of the circular economy? And I talked with Ron, Ron about that. He obviously had some answer. But I, I guess one of the issues is how do we start to be able to uh, not if we can't reduce this because we don't want to increase food waste, how do we start to take on this packaging? And the chemical recycling, which is a technology that's been around for many years, is just now being pulled off the shelf. It's still not cost competitive with traditional mechanical recycling, but it would enable taking those many different kinds of plastics and breaking them down to the molecular or, or polymer monomer uh, level to turn back into new plastics and i think that's a really exciting opportunity that, that's still to come and before we leave you i would be remiss if i didn't mention the webcast coming up next tuesday called circular packaging the state of play 
I'll be hosting that along with Christopher Davidson of West Rock, Deanna Bradder of Danone, and Nina Goodrich with the Sustainable Packaging Coalition. That will be uh, May 21st at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. You can go to greenbiz.com and find more information about that webcast. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization stories and events we mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, check out our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Our email, 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week as usual. Until next time, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. 